And as you take your seat, you can open with me to Paul's letter, his second letter to the Thessalonians. We're in a series of messages through the little book of 2 Thessalonians. We started this series two weeks ago, and this morning we find ourselves in the first chapter, verses 6 through 12. Very sobering verses that speak about the future, the return of Christ, justice, and judgment. Never a pleasant thing to preach about subject matter like this, and yet the Bible is full of it. In fact, John Stott makes an observation from the uh, various passages we read this morning that you can see that judgment is always intertwined with blessings on the righteous. And I believe Stott makes the observation of saying God wrote it that way so that those uh, of more liberal theology who want to eliminate God's justice and judgment would not be able to do so because it wouldn't make any sense whenever you read some of these passages. Because God is gracious and loving and kind, but he does reserve judgment for those who abuse his kindness and his grace. And we're going to see some of that this morning. Previously, in the first five verses of this book, of chapter 1, Paul offered thanks and encouragement for the Thessalonians in light of uh, two things. One, their spiritual growth, and then secondly, the righteous judgment of God as seen in their suffering for Christ. The righteous judgment of God as seen in their suffering for Christ. Indeed, in verse 5, Paul saw the suffering of the Thessalonians as, quote, evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Those unusual words, when you wrestled with them a bit, we realized that we cannot make ourselves worthy to stand before God, and suffering doesn't make us any more worthy. There's no merit inside of suffering, but what Paul means by that is that God is basically working out what he has worked in us. That through suffering, the Christian uh, being persecuted by others who do not know and do not love Jesus Christ becomes more and more uh, visible. The graces of God in his or her heart and they're demonstrated to be worthy of the kingdom. And so our conclusion last time together was that God uses our suffering for Jesus Christ to sanctify us and make us worthy recipients of the kingdom. And suffering in this life is a true mark of our union with Christ. Our suffering persecution for Christ's sake is evidence that the righteous judgment of God owed to us has been absorbed by Jesus. I love the words of Paul in Colossians 1.24, where he puts it so succinctly, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, to the Colossians, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Paul saw the visible church of Christ as Christ's visible body on earth. And so part of his job and part of the responsibility of every Christian is to shine their light for Christ so that, not to welcome persecution or bring it on, but that when it does come, because we know Christ, we will be sanctified even further. And so today we continue in this passage filled with encouragement, oddly enough, as the Apostle Paul outlines for us uh, three things. One, the encouragement of God's justice, and we see that in verses 6 and 7a. 
And then secondly, the encouragement of Christ's return. And we see that in 7b through verse 10. And then finally, the encouragement of Paul's prayer, a concluding prayer in verses 11 and 12. So with an outline of the message, join me in prayer. And let's ask God to enlighten our minds and renew our wills as we study His Word together. Heavenly Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Father, I pray that you would use these sobering words that you gave the Apostle Paul from yourself to us. That, Lord, you might strengthen us, encourage us, that you might convict us, and that perhaps bring some of us into the kingdom for the first time. Lord, do all your holy will. Get all the glory for what you will do and how you will move through your word during this hour of worship. We make our prayer confidently in the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, first of all, I want you to notice the encouragement of God's justice. In verse 6, Paul is making clear that there will be a day of absolute and comprehensive justice. Nothing escapes God's notice. It's like we read in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, our third reading for this morning. Jesus said, Therefore do not fear them, that is, those who persecute. For there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be made known. All human beings, all human beings have a sense of justice because we bear God's image. Every culture, regardless of its laws or morals, punishes criminals. I challenge you to go and find a country where they welcome stealing, where they welcome theft, where they welcome abuse of somebody's person or property. I don't think you'll find it because human beings are made in the image of God. And even godless nations have this imprint on their hearts so that their officials punish evil. So the Lord is very much aware of every single incident when his people suffer for the sake of the gospel. And while much of human justice is imperfect, divine justice is always perfect. In fact, the Bible teaches that it is impossible for God to be unjust. Genesis 18.25, Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? God cannot be unjust in his dealings with human beings and all of his creation. Job said in chapter 37.23 of the book that bears his name, the Almighty God will do no violence to justice or righteousness. Jeremiah the prophet said in chapter 32, verse 19, He is great in counsel and mighty in deed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men, giving to everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. Yes, the Bible's clear that God is a God of justice. Now notice... He gives justice for the wicked and for the righteous. For the wicked, in verse 6, God will repay with affliction those who afflict his people. He doesn't lose sight of this. In Genesis 12, 3, God told Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. In Zechariah 2, verse 8, he who touches God's people touches the apple of his eye. The Lord Jesus himself said in Matthew 18, 6, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck 
and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. And so Paul makes it clear that God is going to have a day where he will repay the wicked. That is, those who do not know him, those who reject Jesus Christ, they will be repaid, especially for their persecution of the righteous, those who do know Jesus Christ. But notice also, this justice is not only for the wicked, but for the righteous. He goes on to say in verse 7, and to give you relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. I can't help but think about Revelation 6, verse 10, where at that last book of the Bible, we have a picture, a scene in heaven of those who have been beheaded, of those who suffered martyrdom for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And they cry out under the altar, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? There will be a day where there is relief but not yet. As vulnerable human beings, we can only stand so much. We live in a world as aliens and foreigners, according to what the Apostle Peter said. We're just passing through. We're not at home here. And our God knows what we can handle, and He gives us grace to handle whatever difficulties may come our way, especially when it's persecution for Christ's sake. And so it takes spiritual discernment to see the evidence of the justice of God in a situation of injustice. I mean, think about that. We tend to see only the surface appearance, the wicked flourishing and the righteous suffering. It seems completely topsy-turvy. We are tempted to protest against God and against the miscarriage of justice. Why doesn't God do something? How many times have you heard that or said that? Why doesn't God do something in the midst of these terrible injustices that we see? in our nation, and in our world. I can't help but think of Psalm 73. You know that magnificent psalm where the psalmist uh, is vexed. He looks around and he sees the unrighteous flourishing. He sees the wicked always at ease. Their eye bulges with fatness because they are so well off. And then he looks at himself and he looks at the righteous. And he says, we suffer, we go through difficulties, we have pain and misery. But then he enters the house of God. And his entire perspective is changed. And he realizes that the wicked are on a slippery slope and that God will one day deal with them. And he's able to conclude that magnificent psalm with verse 28. As for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. You see, what the psalmist would say is, when we say, why doesn't God do something? The psalmist would say, he is doing something. And that is, he's working in the lives of all of his children in order to sanctify us and bring us to a point of realizing that the nearness of God is my good, not the absence of bad things and the presence of good things. But the nearness of God, and that whatever difficulties I go through in this life, whatever suffering I go through on behalf of Christ, that He is with me, and He is using it to make me worthy of His kingdom. He is allowing His people to suffer in order to qualify them for the heavenly kingdom. He's allowing the wicked to triumph temporarily, but His just judgment will fall on them in the end. And so, in summary, Paul sees evidence that God's judgment is right 
in the very situations in which we might see nothing but injustice. The Lord has a way of turning things upside down. I love the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 9.10. He's increasing, God is increasing the harvest of our righteousness. We are righteous in Christ alone and faith in Him. But through sufferings, the Lord is increasing the harvest of righteousness. Now let me say one thing here. Don't go out looking to suffer for Christ. There are some people that think it's somehow meritorious if they go out and they act obnoxious in order to bring condemnation on themselves. No. No, we don't go out hunting for persecution. I saw a guy one time with a t-shirt that said, uh, Daniel, you know, bring on the lions. As if he were just tempting to find persecution for the name of Christ. I've had people come to my door that way and spout all kinds of heresy so that I might get upset with them and chase them off my doorway so that they would suffer for Jesus when in fact they're suffering for their own foolishness. No, suffering for Christ happens whenever we open our mouths and we tell somebody in a situation about Jesus. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 10, whatever I speak to you, in the darkness, shout out in the light. And what you hear whispered in the ear, get on the housetop and tell it. There is a place, there is a time that is appropriate for us to share our testimony for Christ, whether at work or perhaps at recreation or at school. You'll see those opportunities to approach someone and say, have you ever made the discovery of knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Just be ready for the response. Sometimes you'll be shocked and it'll be favorable. Other times, they may look at you as a nut job, <laughs> as irrelevant to their lives. But the point is, you made a testimony for Christ. And so, you incur some degree of suffering or opposition as a result of your faith in Jesus. Now, secondly, I want you to notice, it's vital to understand that this encouragement of God's justice is tied is inextricably bound to the second coming of Jesus Christ. You'll notice that in verse 7b. Paul finishes his sentence, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. His revelation from heaven is when the Lord Jesus will set all wrongs right. This is the Lord Jesus, the very same Lord Jesus who lived and died and rose again and ascended back to heaven. His first coming was in weakness and obscurity. He was born in a cow stable in a manger. His second coming will be public, powerful, and magnificent. I want you to note the description that Paul gives of Christ and his return. It's different than 1 Thessalonians 4, where he says there'll be a loud command, the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet call of God. Here we read from the same apostle Paul that Christ will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming or blazing fire. Why the difference? Well, there's so many different elements of Christ's return. So many different ways to look at it. So many features that will be displayed. It's hard to capture all of them in one Bible passage. But his blazing fire is a symbol of his holy, consuming presence. The holy, consuming presence of God Christ will return with that blazing fire 
presence, and no one will be able to hide from him. The Bible makes it clear in other places in Revelation that men and women will say to the rocks, fall on me and hide me from the presence of this great and awesome God. As though I have rejected him throughout life, now I must deal with him because he will deal with me. Not only in blazing fire, but there'll be a retinue of powerful angels coming with him. Jesus Christ will return while every eye will see him and all the earth will mourn. No one will be able to deny that the true living Christ has returned for his church. And his all-seeing eye will examine both the living and the dead on that day. John Stott said, quote, It is a future of judicial power and righteousness. And it establishes moral direction and certainty for us today. Our moral and ethical center is found in the holiness of God and the inevitability of His judgment. You see, the holiness of God and the fact of future judgment gives us a moral and ethical center, an anchor, if you will, to live life. And it's what holds society together. It's no wonder the further we go in our immorality as a nation and as a world, the more we lose sight of that foundation. The more we dismiss that there's a heaven or a hell. You see people doing that all the time. Everything comes unraveled when you throw out the concept of justice and judgment. William Barclay says, The great value of the doctrine of the second coming of Christ is that it guarantees that history is going somewhere. Because without it, You and I both know and can see that history is going nowhere except into oblivion and confusion. And so this justice of God is tied to the revelation of Christ from heaven. Now, what will he do? Well, we see that in verses 8 and 9. First of all, his retribution to the wicked. The Bible says he'll be dealing out retribution. It's a Greek word that means to give back or to recompense. It's a strong, compound word that conveys the idea of full and complete repayment. Don't think for a moment that God has lost sight of any affliction suffered by any of his children. That's why he said in that Matthew passage, don't be afraid, the very hairs of your head are numbered. And if they call the ruler of the household Beelzebub, how much more? Will they label you, my followers, my children? Yes, there will be suffering. But vengeance is mine and retribution is mine, says the Lord in Deuteronomy 32, 35. There's a reason why we read Malachi this morning. Because the Bible says, Behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. There's no joy in passages like this. The judgment of the wicked is a horrible thing. God says in the book of Ezekiel, I take no delight in the suffering of the wicked. And yet, a just God will be just, consistently just, in everything. What else could he do for those who reject the gospel? 
to reject and submit their lives to the living Lord who died for their sins, what else can he do but to reject them as they have given final rejection of him? He goes on to describe these people, those who do not know God, those who do not have a personal relationship with God. Why? Because throughout life they have suppressed the truth. As Paul says in Romans 1, 18 and 19, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. That's what makes unbelievers so angry. And ultimately, that's what propels an unbeliever's anger towards a believer. It's not that they don't know. It just takes a lot of energy to stuff and suppress the truth. And it makes the non-believer more and more frustrated when he sees the peace and the joy and the tranquility of someone who knows who they are in Jesus Christ. And that's why persecution will only increase. We're seeing it now. Human beings, pagans, act like unreasoning animals. We can't even have a discussion, a civil discussion in the marketplace unless we begin to agree with a position that we never would agree with. And those who do the afflicting are starting more and more to act like the afflicted. Woe to those who make right wrong and wrong right. But that's what's happening in our culture. You don't need to invite persecution. It will come in due time. The real issue is how will I deal with it when it comes? Am I willing to suffer for Christ's sake? Well, his retribution will come. Listen to the words of John MacArthur. Despite the abundant evidence all around them and within them, that should lead them to a true knowledge of God, people refuse to believe. Hell will be populated by the willfully ignorant. Again, it's not that they don't know. It's this suppression, running from the truth. Those who reject Christ will hear him say on the last day, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Let me remind all of us that in that context, those people say, did we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we perform marvelous miracles? There's all kinds of people that don't know the Lord Jesus. And they can give all kinds of signs but at the end of the day, if you don't have an intimate, personal relationship with God through faith in Christ alone, you will hear those words. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. He goes on to say, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. This could be one and the same with those in the preceding words. I mean, to not know God is uh, by default to not embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, some take it to mean a more severe violation to reject the gospel. You know, hearing and rejecting the gospel message serves to intensify the guilt of the wicked. To whom much is given, much is required, the Lord Jesus said. And so those who have no gospel, they see perhaps a God and they stuff that knowledge and innate knowledge of God. How much more severe to trample under the foot of the blood of the covenant and insult the spirit of grace, as the writer of Hebrews says. You know, there are gradations of hell and gradations of heaven, the Bible said. It's going to be perfectly, everybody's going to be perfectly miserable in hell. Everybody's going to be perfectly joyous in heaven. But Jesus did 
recognized gradations of that when he said it'd be more tolerable for this city than that city. And he who knows his master's will but doesn't do it will be beaten with more stripes than he who didn't know his master's will and didn't do it. It would be a horrible fate of all those who do not know God because they rejected the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And then they'll stand in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, at the great white throne judgment and be sentenced forever to the lake of fire. Paul goes on, look at this verse. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. The Greek word for eternal is used all over the New Testament to speak of endless duration of things. It will not come to an end. The suffering and the miseries of a godless hell. Then he uses the word destruction. That can be somewhat misleading. The Greek word is olethros. It does not refer to annihilation, but to ruination. It does not mean cessation of existence, but rather the loss of all that makes existence worthwhile. That's what makes us different than animals. An animal has no soul. When they die, they don't suffer. They don't exist anymore. But we are eternal beings because we're made in the image of God, and we're going to spend eternity in one place or the other, either with endless eternal misery in hell or with endless joy and refreshment and relief and peace in heaven. John MacArthur, once again, I have to quote, The lost will not cease to exist, but will experience forever a life of uselessness, hopelessness, emptiness, and meaninglessness, with no value, no worth, accomplishment, purpose, goal, or hope. They will be ruined forever. Liam Morris, the great commentary, theologian writer, he said, quote, they'll pass into a night on which no morning dawns. Everything characteristic of the presence of God will be gone, away from the presence of the Lord. There's a reference there, an illustration of Lazarus and the rich man. You remember that? Both of them died in Luke 16, and Lazarus went to the bosom of Abraham, and the rich man was in hell. And he cried out, Send Lazarus, Lord! to dip his finger in water and touch my tongue. And the Lord says, won't happen. There is a great gulf fixed between you and us. And you cannot cross over here, and we will not cross over there. It's forever. It's a horrible thing. And ladies and gentlemen, as Christians, it ought to break our hearts. This is real. We live in a world that is constantly screaming that the material realm is the only real realm. No. No, the spiritual realm. And we know it to be true. Where the Lord our God is at work, that is the real realm. And we know that people will experience eternal uselessness and hopelessness and emptiness because we see it now. Isn't that so? Think about people you know who don't know Jesus Christ and how they deal with life. There is meaninglessness, no value, a lack of purpose and goal and a hope. That's why our society is in such a mess. And it's only a picture of the future, of what it will be like for eternity without Christ. But there's still good news. 
in spite of all of that retribution for the wicked. You see in verse 10, Christ will demonstrate his glory in the righteous. Look at verse 10. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. What a beautiful statement. This is a glorious manifestation of believers that Paul wrote about in Romans 8, verses 18 and 19. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. It's a beautiful thing. Christ is going to come back in all of his glory. And then that glory is going to fill every one of us. And we will be glorified beings before our Lord. I think about that, and I think about all the miseries of this life and the difficulties that people suffer under, and death itself, and physical illness, and diseases for which there is no cure. One day, those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, even though they may have bodies that are racked with pain and feel a sense of hopelessness, will stand before the Lord Jesus, just as Jesus stood at the transfiguration, bright and clean and glorified. That's the way every child of God will be when Christ returns. We will behold His glory, and the glory He has will be seen in His people. What a future hope. What a future home. Christ will not only display His glory, but in some way this glory will be shown in those who belong to Him. This is the day Paul had in mind when he wrote, Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. 2 Corinthians 4.17 All the heartache and the pain and the disappointments of this life will be swallowed up. The future kept Paul pressing on in the present. That's why he could say in 2 Corinthians 4.16 We do not lose heart. We keep going. Encouragement of Christ's return. Do you believe it? It's a very special, special doctrine in Scripture. And after speaking of all this, Paul says, thirdly and finally, he gives an encouraging prayer in verses 11 and 12. This is a beautiful prayer. I want you to note the frequency and motivation of Paul's prayers for the Thessalonians and ultimately for us. To this end, also, we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling. Praise always. Praise without ceasing. I love the words of Ian Bounds, who wrote years ago, prayer is not part of the ministry. Prayer is the ministry. I don't know if I agree technically with that statement, but there's a lot of truth in it. Because when we pray, the Lord acts. And that's when true ministry takes place. And Paul is motivated to pray because he wants to see the worthy walk of the Thessalonians. He not only felt the weight and responsibility to teach and preach and correct, but to pray day after day on their behalf. And since steadfastness in Christ's life depends upon the continual gracious action of God and the faith of his people, Paul continually prays that God will enable his people to demonstrate the reality of their faith and action, and so make them worthy of his calling. And notice in 11b how Paul outlines what his readers should be praying for. It's very convicting to me. 
that God will fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. How often do I go in prayer and say, Lord, I, I need this. I want this. <laughs> the never-ending shopping list. I want you to solve my problem. I want you to provide provisions for my need. Here is Paul saying, whenever you belong to faith in Christ, whenever you face some suffering, you begin to see what life is really about. And then there's a desire for goodness inside of you. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And for the work of faith with power, now you're praying that God's work in you would be demonstrated, that His power would be in your life to make you fearless to share the gospel with others and to walk in a life of faith. So much abuse these days of what a Christian prayer should be and what it should look like. No, as we grow in grace, we'll pray prayers like that. Lord, I want to know you better. Lord, I want your name to be glorified. Lord, I want to know your glory. And that's what Paul ends up with in verse 12. Such conduct will lead to praise being offered to Jesus and his people will share in the glory and honor given to him. That the name of the Lord Jesus would be glorified in you. Is that happening in your life? You know, it's only by the grace of God. We can't bring any of this about. All we can do is say, Lord Jesus, have mercy. Give me the grace. Give me the grace to wait upon you and to look forward to your return. Give me the grace to set my mind, as Paul said, on things above, not on things that are on the earth. And give me the grace to persevere when I face persecution, regardless of its intensity, that I might glorify the name of Jesus in that event. May God give us the grace to do all these things as we patiently wait the day of justice, and His mighty return for all of us, though we be dead or alive. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this marvelous letter and for the encouragement that it offers to us as believers. And yet, Lord, there's sobering words here of judgment and devastation, eternal damnation. And so I pray that we would hear both the good news in light of the bad news and that we would always have our hope and our faith in you, Lord Jesus, alone. For to know you is to escape judgment and to be declared righteous. And Lord, I pray this morning, if there's one or two here, perhaps a young person, Lord, that is struggling with their future and thinking about where they stand with the gospel, that, Lord, you would impress these truths on his or her mind and draw them to yourself and empower them to live a life worthy of the gospel and of Jesus Christ. Lord, do all these things and more. We'll give you the praise and glory for what you will do in our lives and in our church. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.